Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 7. In the last episode, I covered several of the geographic places mentioned in the Book of Numbers, including Arad, the River Arnon, the Wilderness of Paran, and the King's Highway, along with several places we know little to nothing about. I'm continuing that line of topics this week, except tweaking the focus a bit to include a subject that is both a people and place. Essentially, a place that included a population that shares the same name, like Edom and the Edomites. Except in that case, I covered them in two previous episodes, Chapter 2, Episodes 64 and 65. Along the same lines, I covered Hedasaw and the Hittites in the same chapter, Episodes 51 through 54. Moab and the Moabites in episodes 45 and 46, and Canaan and the Canaanites in chapter 2, episodes 23 through 30. I also covered the wilderness of Zen in chapter 3, episode 68. Of course, it was previously presented as Sin with an S. In numbers, it's Zen with a Z. Either way, it's believed to be the same place. Most of these prior topics, especially those combining people and places that share similar names, were released over two years ago. Assuming you're listening in real time and not binging at some later date. Either way, in case you've forgotten about these peoples, now you know where to find them. This week, I'm continuing to work through numbers. And with that, let's get started. All of this gets me to the Jebusites. They were mentioned in the 13th chapter as living in the hill country explored by the spies. I've discussed them before. As in previous books, they were typically included in lists of people inhabiting the general area of Canaan. Later in the Old Testament, in the books of Joshua and 2 Samuel, we're told that they are essentially a Canaanite tribe that lived in the area that would become Jerusalem. As the Israelites began to conquer Canaan, the Jebusites would maintain their control. Which begs the question, where specifically did they live and therefore rule over? First Chronicles provides the answer, claiming that pre-conquest, the city of Jerusalem was known as Jebus, hence the name of the people. And this would be one of the last areas to fall to the Israelites, with David finally seizing the city that would become Jerusalem around 1003 BC, at least according to the text. Some outside scholars believe that the Jebusites lived in a different area entirely. These scholars, the ones who dispute the conquering of the city by David, rely on a few artifacts that date before the turn of the millennium. Most of these refer to the city by a name that is similar to Jerusalem, one such case are the Armana letters, thought to have been written some 300 years prior to David's conquest. In these letters, the chieftain of Jerusalem, a fellow known as Abdi-Heba, calls the city Eurasilum, at least phonetically similar to the name assigned by the later Israelites. His name is thought by some to be a reference to the Hurrian mother goddess named Hobbit. Other parts of the letters name the location as Beth Shalem, which translates to the House of Shalem. 
Complicating the matter is that the Sumero-Akkadian name for the city was Uracilum, thought to translate to the phrase the foundation of the god Shalom. And this deity Shalom was the Canaanite god of the setting sun, the netherworld, health, and perfection. An interesting combination. There are other artifacts that attest to the Jebusites. One such is a contract dating to about 2200 BC, so 1200 years before David. This document refers to a group known as Yabusu. Some interpret this group's name as translatable to the Jebusites. There are other complicating factors. Other than the potential interpretation of the contract, the only direct reference from any ancient document to the Jebusites as the pre-Israelite residents of Jerusalem is in the Old Testament. Overall, no one disputes that the Jebusites were a group of people. The argument is completely centered on where they lived. Backing up a bit, they were mentioned in Genesis' Table of Nations, listed as a son of Canaan before the Amorites. Embedded in Genesis in chapter 14, is the man named King Melchizedek, who is named as the king of a place named Salem. In this part of Genesis, this king was also a priest of the God Most High. And this priest blessed Abram, the same Abram we know as Abraham. Abram would tithe the priest. Later, much later rabbinic writing by Rashi would claim that Melchizedek was the same person as Shem, the son of Noah. This would have meant that the king and Abram were related, as it said that Abram descended from Shem's son, Arphaxid. Do note that Genesis records Shem lived for 600 years, which is one of the reasons why Rashi may have made the claim. The interesting part is that this king ruled over what is thought to have become the city of Jerusalem, but he worshipped the God Most High, assumed to be the God of Abraham. More on this intersection and how it played out in the United Kingdom in a minute. What is unclear is if he was a Jebusite, or perhaps they came to rule the city sometime after Melchizedek, and prior to the return of the Israelites. When Abraham's wife Sarah died, he purchased a cave and a field from the Hittites in order to bury her. At least the New Revised Standard in the NIV calls them Hittites. The King James calls them the son of Heth. Several rabbinical sources claim the cave was in Jebusite territory. The same writers also make the claim that part of the price of Abraham's purchase of the cave of the patriarchs was that Abraham made a covenant that his descendants would not take control of Jebus against the will of the Jebusites. And then the Jebusites engraved the covenant into bronze. This would play out when Joshua attempted to defeat the Jebusites many centuries later. Up until recently, outside researchers, think archaeologists, consider them to be a subset of the larger Hittite tribe. While some hold to this belief, the tide is slowly shifting that they may have been part of the Amorites. Considering their placement in the Table of Nations, either seems plausible and not out of line with the later writings in the Old Testament that they inhabited Jerusalem. Square, meat rectangle. Of course, there is also the previously mentioned king found in the Armana letters, 
which may have indicated at a minimum a Hurrian influence, if not complete control. Also potentially indicating a Hurrian influence is that one of the last Jebusites mentioned in the biblical text was named either Arana or Ornan, or a few other names depending on the translation. He is found in 2 Samuel 24 and owned a threshing floor that David wanted to acquire. David would then build an altar on the site. It's thought that this may have been the location that later became Solomon's temple. The Jebusite's name, whichever one, take your pick, is believed to also be a Hurrian honorary title. Other researchers think it may have been a Hittite name. There are other potential Hurrian-derived names in the text, all leaders of tribes eventually conquered by the Israelites and found in Joshua. Piram, king of Jarmuth, Hoham, the king of Hebron, and Sheshim and Talmai, both sons of Anak. I'll discuss these in some later episode, probably when I get to the book of Joshua, whenever that is. One thing to consider is that overall, there were several, well, really many tribes that lived in the general region. Tribes with local chieftains that could and would frequently shift allegiances from one group to the other depending on which way the military and trade winds were blowing. Combine that with scant evidence and an incomplete knowledge of many of these ancient languages and you get a less than stellar understanding. Not to forget, and as I've mentioned before, in our modern world, we like to arrange things, including ancient peoples, into neat static categories. The world, and especially the ancient world, doesn't fit into this paradigm particularly well. Having said that, there's still more to explore with the Jebusites, now focusing on what's in the biblical text. Like I mentioned early in the episode, the text describes the Jebusites as living in the hills and mountains. This is thought to be in and around Jerusalem, which, topographically, is hilly. After all, that's why the location of the temple is called the Temple Mount, and not to forget the other local places, like Calvary Hill. In Exodus, they are listed with other peoples from the region, a region that was described as a good and large land flowing with milk and honey, a land that was promised by God to Moses to be the home to the not-quite-yet-wandering Israelites, the promised land, where all of the present occupants would be driven out. There are other mentions of the people. In the book of Joshua, a chieftain named Adunizedek is said to have led an alliance of Jebusites, Jebusites hailing not only from Jebus, but also from the adjacent cities of Jarmut, Lachish, Eglon, and Hebron. This coalition fought the Israelites led by Joshua. The book, in its tenth chapter, tells us that the Jebusites were resoundingly defeated. It was during this campaign that the sun stood still. Later, in Joshua chapter 15, we're given a bit more detail. Apparently, the Jebusites were defeated but were not driven out. The exact quote is that the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. 
this, of course, was contrary to the instructions given to Moses by God in Numbers chapter 33, where he was told to drive out all of the current inhabitants. God told Moses, who relayed the message to the people, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They shall trouble you in the land where you are settling. End quote. Judges 1 tells us that members of the Canaanite tribe continued to live within the confines of Jerusalem, though most of the area around it was completely controlled by the tribe of Benjamin. Now for the counter-argument made by a few archaeologists. And the usual disclaimer applies. These researchers posit that the capture of Canaan by the Israelites while being led by Joshua never occurred. They believe that the Israelites likely originated as a Canaanite subculture. There is also the theory put forth by a few biblical scholars who believe that the Joshua narrative is not a linear story, but instead is more of a stitched together work combining oral histories and folk stories. But that's enough of that for now. I'll cover their theories when I get to the book of Joshua. Fast forward through the period of the judges, then King Saul, to the reign of David. In 2 Samuel, when David took the throne, the Jebusites were in control of Jerusalem. Shortly after he was crowned, David attempted what has been presented as a peaceful entry into Jerusalem. But the Jebusites would not allow him to come in, and David didn't like this. Of course, the Jebusites weren't leaving without a fight. And they weren't meek about their control of the city. Keep in mind that at the time, it didn't hold the religious significance that it gained over the 3,000 or so years since. It was just another city controlled by the Canaanites in the territory controlled by the Israelites through their various tribes. Jebus was said to be the strongest fortress in Canaan, and the Jebusites were so sure that they could maintain control, they claimed that even the blind and the lame, their translated words, could defend against the sieging Israelites. Apparently, they had forgotten the boastful words of Goliath when they met the same leader. According to the text, at least the Masoretic version of events, Joab would lead the Israelites on a surprise attack through the water supply tunnels. So much for relying on the city's walls. FYI, the city does not have an adequate natural supply of water, and most must be obtained through these tunnels. The story is actually richer, but I'll save that for when I cover the book of 1 Chronicles, which does not mention attacking through the underground aqueduct, but it does say the attack was swift. The Septuagint describes the Israelites attacking with daggers, no mention of a subterranean assault. Because of the victory, Joab became the highest-ranked general in David's army. Either way, whether through tunnels with knives or just a rapid assault, the city fell to the Israelites, but the Jebusites were not driven out. Think back to the possible covenant Abraham made as a potential reason why. Instead, those that survived were relegated to something akin to serfdom, not quite slaves, but not completely free, at least according to some sources. 
Others claim that David ended up purchasing the city from the Jebusites in order to not violate Abraham's covenant. After this mention, the Jebusites, as an independent group, simply disappear from the Spartan record of their existence. Of course, the people didn't simply evaporate, but were just part of the unrecorded history. There are theories about what happened to them. One such theory is the aptly named Jebusite Hypothesis. This posits that the people remained as residents of Jerusalem. Their population was sufficient enough within the kingdom of Judah that many of the later notable residents may have descended from them. People such as Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Bathsheba. And if Bathsheba was at least partly Jebusite, then so was her son, Solomon. But there's nothing to support this theory, other than speculation. There's a bit more to it. Backing up, after the disgrace of a rival faction of priests in the struggle for succession to David, the family of Zadok the priest became the only official priest in Jerusalem. And if Zadok was a Jebusite, then it was a Jebusite family that suddenly gained sole control over this part of the religion. And thinking back to the possibly Jebusite priest that blessed Abram, then a Jebusite having control over the priesthood becomes more acceptable. Control that would last for several centuries. Over time, the Jebusites would be fully integrated into the greater Judean society and culture, and with that, they would disappear from the record. Until our modern society. In the very very recent past, both Yasser Arafat and Paisal Husani claim that Palestinian Arabs are descended from the Jebusites. Arafat was the leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. Husani was another prominent Palestinian leader. Of course, they both had their own agendas in making the claim, all with the intent of proving that the Palestinians had occupied the land longer than the Israelis. While they were making this claim, others would claim that the Palestinians were descended from the Canaanites for similar reasons. A Palestinian encyclopedia from 1978 presented a claim succinctly, quoting, The Palestinians are the descendants of the Jebusites, who are of Arab origin, and described Jerusalem as an Arab city because its first builders were the Canaanite Jebusites, whose descendants are the Palestinians. End quote. No mention was made of the priest that blessed Abram. Now, there are all sorts of counter-arguments against this claim, including the general consensus among both historians and archaeologists, including the famed biblical scholar William F. Albright. And these are that modern Palestinians are more closely related to the Arabs of Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Jordan, and other regional countries, there is little to no connection between them and the historical Jebusites. You can form your own opinion. And that's it for the Jebusites. Now, I have a few minutes remaining, and there are several places that we know little about, but still need to cover. Now is as good a time as any to work through some of these. The next place is Kibroth Hetava. Another of the places the wandering Israelites passed through in their 40-year journey. It's the place in Numbers chapter 11 where the Israelites were inundated with quail 
and were struck with a plague, a plague that killed enough of them that they named the place the Graves of Craving. At least that's the translation in the NIV and New Revised Standard. In the King James, it's the Graves of Lust. A few biblical scholars considered the quail and plague story to be a myth, invented to explain a place name, the same name. They explain the theory relates to the regional stone circles known as Nawamis, dating to sometime in the 4th millennium BC. Such stone circles are found only in the southern Negev Desert and Sinai Peninsula. Then there's a bit of debate and confusion. Some lists of the stopping points in Deuteronomy include a place named Taborah, but this place is not found in Numbers. Some researchers theorize that Kibroth Hetava may be a combination of Taborah and Hetava, with the primary evidence presented being the similarities in the names. Does it really matter? That's for you to decide. To me, while interesting, it changes nothing. But it's the perfect opportunity to explore that place, too. Taborah is said to be three days from Mount Sinai, so not far at all. And if the location of Sinai is at the southern end of the peninsula, then Taborah and the co-identified Kibroth Hedavah may have been a wadi known as Murrah. This wadi is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers from the southern tip of the peninsula, which would place it within a three or so day walk from what's thought to have been Mount Sinai. In this area, the remnants of an ancient encampment have been uncovered. But these may be too old, dating to around the early 3rd millennium BC, about a thousand years, give or take, before the Exodus. Other than that, the other more interesting thing about this site is that it has an unusually high concentration of both uranium and thorium. And that's it for both Kibroth Hedava and Taborah. The last place I'll cover this week is a place known as Hazeroth, beginning in Numbers chapter 11. It was a waypoint during the 40-year journey. When translated from ancient Hebrew to English, it turns into the word yards, as in the place where you grow your grass. It was here that Moses' sister Miriam contracted leprosy after she and her brother Aaron showed their jealousy towards Moses. Like many of the lesser written about waypoints, its location is unknown and therefore subject to a great deal of speculation. Given its position in the text between Kibroth Hedava and the wilderness of Paran, it's assumed to have been a geographical place somewhere between those two places. And that's it. That's all we know about it. And a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the Amorites. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, 
and have a great week.